Thank you, Rabbi Ari. There were very wise words of introduction, except the part that referred to me. <laughs> How many of you am I meeting for the first time tonight? How come? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to learn from you. One of the wonderful benefits that the Lubavitcher Rebbe gave me when he put me on the road is that each night when I'm lecturing, and I'm here in America in 17 cities this time around in 22 days, is that I'm in a room full of my teachers. But you won't be able to share with me unless you open up your mouth and speak to me. So I'm going to encourage you to raise your hands and tell me where I get it wrong, correct me, share with me your thoughts and ideas, and that way I'll be able to benefit as well. You know, there are moments in history, in our history, in our lifetime, that stand out in our minds. And we can recall exactly where we are when an event took, took place. I think that in this room there are people like myself that remember the day when the Six-Day War broke out and where we might have been. I was a 19-year-old at university, and uh, there was a very wonderful evening at which a very, very special rabbi and teacher addressed a large group of people, Rabbi Chaim Gutnik, whose descendant sits in the back of this room. And I volunteered, but the war ended before I got onto the plane. But I remember the moment. And then the 73 war, likewise, I remember exactly. And then we will remember where we were when JFK was assassinated. We'll remember where we were when 9-11 took place. So we have certain mind recollection mechanisms hooks around which many other memories revolve around. And that's to understand the nature of the mind. And I'm going to speak in terms of the way that the mind operates a little later in this presentation, especially in context of how events affect it, what causes stress, what causes anxiousness, and worry, how this is hurtful to the body, how it causes despondency in interrelational settings. We are living at such a moment. I have a son who's right now in the thick of things in Israel. He works in intelligence. He's close to the war room. I have two grandchildren, one on the northern front, one on the southern front. And of course, I'm concerned. I'm a grandparent and a parent. Who wouldn't be? But I want to share with you in the course of this hour the way I respond to those circumstances. You see, Many of us are at such a distance 
that what we experience is helplessness? How does our hand reach out and have an effective role to help our brothers and sisters? And yet, the Lubavitch Rebbe keeps intimating, as we saw in the film, that there are ways and means that we move through the ether of space in a very real way and in so doing participate actively both in the protection and the welfare of others at a distance. Some of you might be familiar with a work by the Frida Kareba known as Likute Diburim where on the opening page, the opening chapter, the Friedrich Rebbe says as follows, you can project a thought to the other side of the globe and with your thought affect that person materially and spiritually. And he was being exact. We don't stop at the surface of our skin. We have a capacity to radiate. And I'm sure the course in Kabbalah that was mentioned earlier is going to explicate that as well. Let me put it to you in this way. Two seconds before a person dies, God forbid, we should all live to 120. But two seconds before a person dies, his or her eyes are functional, ears are functional, they can see, they can hear. And yet two seconds after they die, they can neither hear or see. Why? That's a real question. Tell me, why? The obvious? Well, uh, upon death, your brain is no longer able to interpret uh, sensory stimuli from the environment internally. Okay, so maybe there isn't interpretation. And maybe it's just sound without interpretation. But why don't even sounds register? Why don't even light register in the eyes without interpretation? It's not working. You could answer me very simply and say, well, the person is dead. <laughs> But that explains nothing. It's just the word. You all have a bed lamp. And you flick a switch and the light comes on. And you flick the switch again and it goes off. However, if you pull the wire out of the outlet, flicking the switch isn't going to do anything. Why? Quite. The flow of energy from the source is missing. The bed lamp is intact. 
the globe is intact, the body is intact, in the space of two seconds, there hasn't been any decomposition of the ears and the eyes. But the wire's been pulled out of the outlet. The neshama no longer flows through the machinery, the biological machinery of body, of goof which tells us we are a binary system. We're made up of two dimensions, machinery, body, and an animating energy and force that flows through the body to make it work. Yes? Probably because you don't respond to stimuli. If you yell in the ear of a dead person, they don't respond. So you might say, but hold on, they don't respond, but maybe they can hear it. Maybe just some functions have stopped, not others. But that's being a little bit arbitrary that some have and some haven't. It's more likely, and I suspect there are more sophisticated ways of telling that everything has basically stopped, whether it's measured by nerve impulses, whether it's measured by alternative mechanisms to understand what's happening within the body, skin response mechanisms, etc. I strongly suspect that nothing's working. At least nothing in this dimension of time and space. You're correct, but then you're three steps ahead of me at the moment. You know how in Israel they have this Wonderful gesture. Sablanot, <laughs> patience. We're going to get right to your point shortly. Yes. But isn't it uh, because uh, something's broken? Like with the lamp analogy, it's true. If you unplug it, then it can't work. Correct. But it also can't work if the filament is out or the or there's a disconnection in the water. What's your name? Tom. Tom? Yes. Tom. This is my example, not yours, okay? <laughs> when I pose an analogy, don't twist it to make it suit you. We all know that all analogies are imperfect, and we can always make one to defeat another one, but stay with me, because I've got the floor. Okay. <laughs> Well, you're asked a very perceptive question because what we're talking about is a spectrum, are we not? We've got at this end of the spe spectrum a sense, a strong sense of life and energy and health and fullness. And then you move a little bit further across and you've got a phenomenon known as tiredness. What does that mean? And you move further across and you have illness. What does that mean? And you move further across and you have sleep. What does that mean? And then you have unconsciousness. And then you have death. So we're talking about degrees of the neshama flowing through the body. When it flows optimally through the machinery, because the machinery is operating well, 
then it's full health and alertness. But when the machinery is beginning to fade, then the neshama, which is, by the way, full grown at birth, the neshama doesn't grow with you. The biological machinery grows. The neshama doesn't have to mature. It's a total full blast of energy, even in the baby, even in the single cell of conception. That's when ensoulment takes place. Okay, so what we're talking about is degrees, but that's another good discussion. In other words, what does consciousness and subconsciousness actually mean? We'll set that aside. I'm just hinting at it. So what do we have here? We have death being a state where there is a dislocation of the neshama from the goof. And because of that, the goof, the body, begins to decay. The neshama doesn't decay. The neshama remains intact. Your neshama was created last week in Sefer Bereshis. When God created the world, God created all the neshamas, fully grown, adults. You have lived in many lifetimes. Reincarnation. In our tradition, the term is Gilgul Hanefesh. Each time you complete another facet of your soul's journey. So going back to your correction, yes, the neshama is fully aware in the way that spiritual awareness might be conceived of by us human beings. And the dear departed ones are constantly observing us. And entering into our realm in ways that we cannot possibly decipher. But it's a one-way street. We can't see them. They see us. When we cry, they cry. When we laugh, they laugh. So yes, you are correct. But I'm speaking about this dichotomy because I want to talk in terms of what stress and anxiousness and worry is in the same context. So I'm going to introduce two terms which we now can distinguish. Brain and mind. What's the difference between brain and mind, which you can now guess at if you follow my earlier discussion? Could someone tell me the difference between brain, moach, and mind, seichel? Brain's the hardware. Yeah, that's good. Brain's the hardware. Or brain is the machinery. What's mind? What's seichel? Now you can point there, but it doesn't help me. Thinking is an example of it, an expression of mind. But what's mind? What is seichel? It's the lamp turned on. Right? The brain is the lamp. Seichel is when the lamp's turned on, when the energy flows through it. When the energy of the soul flows through the hardware of the bulb, the result is light. 
or mind in our instance? What's hearing? What's seeing? What's the difference between ears and hearing? Likewise. What's the difference between eyes and seeing? Likewise. One refers to the machinery, the other one already refers to the process, when we're alive, when we're conscious. If there is a malfunction in the machinery, the neshama is unable to express optimally. Like if, God forbid, someone loses their right arm, it doesn't mean that the soul has lost the capacity that it has to be able to vivify the right arm, but it hasn't got the machinery in this world of finity, time and space, to activate it. Although there is a slight echo of that, and that's what they call a phantom feeling that sometimes people have who do lose a limb. So let's take it many steps further forward now and speak about stress, anxiousness and worry. Let's define our terms. Before so doing, there's one more thing. Sorry, there's one more thing I need you to help me with. I spoke about mind. What's the other major conscious dimension of our lives? Apart from mind. No, thought is an expression of the mind. The other f totally different dimension of our life. Yeah, yeah. What do I mean by heart? With bigger word? Emotions, yeah, absolutely. Could someone in this room help me and tell me what is an emotion? I'm a Martian. I've landed on Earth. As you know, we Martians have no such thing. Could you please describe to this Martian what is an emotion? Yes. That's beautiful. So you're a poetess, are you, here on Earth? But it may not help this Martian, because I'm a very crystal-thinking individual, and when you say things like that, it doesn't register with me. It's how we feel. But feeling is like a synonym for emotion. What does a feeling mean? Yes? How you respond to a situation. How you respond. Do you mean... Um, nuclear response, electrostatic response, mechanical response, to environment. all of the above. So, all of the above. How it affects you in the environment you're in. How it affects you, that's true, it does affect you, but what is this stuff called emotions? You had a thought in the back. Someone else. Biochemical reaction. Biochemical reaction. Oh, great, so I can probably put it in a test tube, right? <laughs> I've got a test of emotion here. This is what it looks like, Mr. Martian. I'll change the state of the system. Not this test tube, but another one. The biochemical reaction changes the state of your system. So it's no longer a gas, but it's a liquid? Explain. I don't understand. Or energized. You mean it's like water boiling? It changes my energy level. So you're telling me it's property, what it does, but I don't know what it is. The experience. Experience? Something that you are involved in that affects how you think and perceive. So does 
a film, a video. So is that emotion? No, it's a projection on a screen. See, I'm very, very basic and pragmatic. The lady behind you, yes. I see you showing me where it operates, right? Well, that's how an emotion feels to the heart. It does. Now I'm really confused. I thought that's got to do with food and stomach and the way we digest. I'm trying to relate it to an alien, too. I know, I know. It's very hard relating to an alien. Yes, sir. It's the mind revealing itself. It's a mind revealing itself. So emotion is mind, is it? Okay, people, listen, there's no answer. And I'll tell you why I was cheating by asking you the question. Because I was asking you for definition. I was asking you for words. Words are the tools of mind expression. But words are not the appropriate tool of emotion expression. Behavior is. So it's very hard to talk about feelings. We can talk around feelings, and a psychiatrist and a psychologist and a therapist will get you to talk around your feelings, because then something comes through from all that melange of words. But the words have difficulty to be able to pinpoint what it is. And that's why you pay large sums of money to such people. Because they're meant to be trained in that arena. So, emotion and mind. Seichel and what we call midois. And that also will come up in the Kabbalah course. And we'll learn, and not tonight, that the mind and the midois are made up of ten sefirot. And you'll learn that the emotions consists of seven, that there are seven basic emotions. I only want to mention at this moment the dominant one. You'll learn about all seven. In fact, the Hasidic psychologist would have at his or her fingertips a template, not just of seven emotions, but because each of these sefirot are made up of each other, you end up having seven squares emotions, 49. So you'd have, if you were trained in this arena, a template of 49 shades of emotion to assist your client. That's more sophisticated than anything they taught me in psychology. Okay, so we're made up of mind and emotion. The dominant emotion is chesed. There's chesed, gevura, tiferes, netzah, hoi, yisoy, amalchus. I'm only going to mention one, chesed. It's got a translation, it's a modern Hebrew word. But rather than to give the conventional translation, I want to give you a more pragmatic vantage point. Chesed is how we flow outward. Sharing, giving, contributing. Taking from me and allowing it to spread outwards, whether it's intangible goods and services, or whether it's of emotions, or whether it's of my information. It's equal and opposite, by the way, is gevura, the second one. Gevura is anything that does this. Holding within, withdrawing, 
narrow angle, constriction. The most expressive example of chesed is love. What is love? I usually, when I talk about love, which I'm not talking to any extent this evening, I make the following statement. Love is a one-way street. No, love is not a two-way street. Love is not democratic. Love is not reciprocal. And everyone sort of becomes a little bit uh, shaky about that because we've been raised in a culture that says quite the opposite, that we are reciprocal, we are democratic. I will love you if you will love me. And that's the way it should be. But I will love you if you will love me is a conditional statement, is it not? I will love you if you will love me is a business transaction, is it not? It's contract, but love is not contract. Love is chesed. Love is what goes outward, not inward. Outward. Love is what I give you, not what you give me. If you happen to love me back, that's called bonus. But you don't love someone in order that they love you back. That's business. That's transactional. In other words, what I'm saying here is, chesed is this way. It's absolutely true that if you love someone truly, altruistically, it's very likely that they will love you as well. And that's an ideal setting. But you don't love someone because you want something back. That's hard. Can you love someone absolutely altruistically? My answer is, by the way, yes, but not for tonight. Yes. That's the Midot of Abraham. That's the Midot of Abraham is the epitome of chesed. And we seek ourselves to climb to something that is within scope of what Abraham allowed to take place in the world. Absolutely. <coughs> Another way to put it that Hasidus puts this dichotomy of out and in is the idea of achdut and pirud. Achdut comes from the word echad, oneness, and pirut means separation. And now I'm going to make a basic proposition. Everything that tends towards connectedness is satisfying, fulfilling, raises the spirit. Anything which tends to disconnectedness causes pain, concern, anxiousness, stress. So here we have already a very good ind indicator. Love, which is the epitome of chesed, connects. That's why we seek it so much. Whereas parting is sweet sorrow, disconnection, 
hurts. Why are we concerned about Eretz Yisrael at the moment? We're concerned because there are levels of disconnection taking place. We're concerned about deaths, which is an ultimate disconnection. We're concerned that maybe we might lose our country, which is on the knife's edge. Disconnection. Might we end up being a people without a land again? Disconnection. We might have friends and family who we know right now are under threat. Disconnection. Whereas when things are good, and we can be close with people, and we can embrace them, and we can laugh with them, that's connection. And that makes us feel good. So it's very basic. Achdut, echad, and pirud, disconnection. Now let me move more closely to the word stress. What is stress? Stress means that there's a dissonance in the relationship. That there's something shaky in the relationship. Whether it's my relationship with life, whether it's my relationship with a person, whether it's my relationship with my peoplehood, whether it's a relationship with the cosmos. If I feel worried about climate change, that's stress because a certain disconnection takes place. And here comes the punchline. It depends on how your mind interprets the situation. The way you feel is a product of how the mind interprets. What comes first? Feelings or mind? Thoughts? Thoughts. And yet most people will say, if I ask that question at the outset of this discussion, without having given this preamble, most people will say, of course emotions come first. I feel things immediately. Someone says something rotten to me and I straight away feel something. Someone says something nasty to me, I get a feeling, a very strong feeling. Someone says something provocatively to me on the street, I respond with my feelings. And yet, all of you were very wise and said, thought comes first. Which it does. Because how is it possible for feelings to know how to express and what to express and where to express? If not that the mind has given it a direction. If someone is yelling and screaming at you, how do you respond? Well, usually you become like a monkey. You copy them. Ah, that's my cue line. They're yelling at me, I have to yell back. After all, I've been raised in a society that says you have to stand up to yourself, you have to show assertiveness, and you have to be able to tell the other one what, what, who you're all about. Right. Wrong. When I do my anger management talk, and by the way, I don't like the term anger management, 
Anger management says you've got anger, now manage it well. I teach how not to have anger under any circumstances. Because did you know that Judaism teaches that you should never express anger under any circumstances whatsoever, without exception, period. Which usually makes my audience very angry. <laughs> right? And can you get to such a state? In fact, I ask people then, well, would you like to achieve that state? Would you be able to, would you like to achieve that skill? And they're not sure. I like my anger. How dare you deprive me of my right to anger? If I want to be angry, I'll be angry. Who are you to take it away from me? As if we really enjoy anger? Well, some people do, as you know. But let's go back to stress. So stress is an aspect of distress. There was a uh, early researcher by the name of Hans Selye, some of you might know of him, who coined the term eustress, E-U stress, or positive stress. But what he meant was a positive energy flow. The word stress wasn't accurate, in fact, in the way that we use it. Stress is an interpretation. If you're yelling and screaming at me, I've got a choice. Most people don't give themselves a choice. The choice is to be a monkey and copy them, like I said, or instead of being so ego-centered that it's all about me and thinking of myself as a victim and therefore I have to rise up and attack you in turn, why not shift and say to yourself, they're yelling and screaming, they have a problem. What can I do to help them? What have I just done? I have reinterpreted. I have reframed. I haven't allowed the dominant emotion to take over my mind. I have kept the integrity of my mind, which is chesed oriented, concern about the other, and allowed that to frame the situation. Now, I may not be able to help the other person. In fact, nine times out of ten, if someone's yelling and screaming at you, you can't help them in the moment. But that doesn't mean you should attack them by seemingly defending yourself. It's what you're trained. Now, living in our society, we are culturally trained to hit back. Sometimes there's a real need to hit back, but not because of emotions, but because of strategy. Did you know that every soldier in King David's army was trained never to get angry in the heat of battle? Because anger gets in the way of strategic thinking. One of my sons was an officer in a commander unit known as Dultavan. Another one today is a captain reserves in tanks. Both of them taught all of their unit members not to get angry. It gets in the way. A good coach will train his or her players 
not to get angry in the field. When you get angry, you stop playing the ball and start playing the person. Anger has no place. Emotions sometimes have no place. Strategic thinking. The Six-Day War was all about strategic thinking. We have to know when to hit back wisely, not under provocation alone, not emotionally. So I said that the mind comes first, but for most people, untrained, the mind gets a microsecond peep in, and then the emotions flow. And that microsecond was very unwise because they're not trained in wisdom approaches. You don't reframe. You don't reinterpret. So what is stress, coming back to that? It's poor judgment. There's a 50-50 probability 50% of probability that tomorrow is going to be a really good day for us, or God forbid not. What do people jump to? The 50 percentile of worry, which means they're saying negative. Why? Because we're media-driven. And the media is, has got great insights into psychology. The media knows full well that if it can instill fear, it will cause us to be glued to the screen and thereby the adver advertising will be much greater and profit margins for the station will be much better. Therefore, sensationalism and exaggeration is the order of the day. That's why today you and I are living in an age where we need to be much more critical in our thinking and especially with artificial intelligence, with its in, innate biases, we have to be even more critical. The whole education system is going to change. You're not going to be able to get away from chat box GPT. I think that's actually a very wonderful phenomenon. I think AI is a wonderful phenomenon. Just like anything else, though, the enemy isn't the machine, the enemy is us. It's how we use it. It's how we program it. So at the end of the day, it's got everything to do with you and I. So the point being here, that we have to be able to use criteria of measuring. And today, education is going to change for our children. Our children are going to be taught to be better critical thinkers, to look out for biases, to be able to double check the information. That's sophisticated stuff. I'm really glad that's happening. And it's inevitable anyway. So not only live with it, but make good out of it and everything. Look how I've spoken positively about something that for many people is a source of fear and concern. Even people like Elon Musk are concerned by what they've created. Ex-Google directors are very concerned. Labour Wolf's not concerned because you and I know that when the calculator came into the classroom and we thought no one would be able to learn how to function anymore in terms of arithmetic and maths, well, everyone's functioning very well. Differently, but very well, thank you. And this will be the same. Hashem created within us curiosity.
You can't stop curiosity. You can't stop technological advancement. We human beings like to play with the building blocks of the physics of the world. Okay, coming back, stress. So how do you stop being stressed? I'm going to give you two words, but you tell me one first. My best friend's home. Every time I came down into their basement, there was a saying there that says, today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. <laughs> very and good. All is well. Yes, that's very good. That's very good. I'm going to take my time getting there, though. Yes? Backward stress is desserts. Yes, it's desserts. It's what happens after. Yeah, very good. Excellent. Yes, in the back there. I'd say deep breath so that you have a time to reframe. Right, right. Give yourself space. Yeah. Very, very good. And we'll do that together. I'm going to do a little meditation at the end of our session. Yes. Where you place your thoughts. Where you place your thoughts. But it's hard to place your thoughts. I deal with people who wake up 3 o'clock in the morning and can't go back to sleep because something is ailing their mind. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. <laughs> and I teach them a number of different methodologies. You see, Hash I'll teach you one. Very simple. Hashem created us with a wonderful disability. You know what that disability is? We can't think of two things at the same time. You can't. You can do two different things with your hands. One hand can do this and one hand can do that. But you can't think of two things at the same time. Impossible. So that disability gives us a wonderful advantage. That is, you can only think of one bad thing at a time. But that's not the advantage. The advantage is, if you displace the bad thing with a good thing, the bad thing can't be there. So, for example, let me do this with you. Would everyone in this room please recall one instance in their life, in your life, where you were supremely happy, whether in your childhood, teenagehood, young adulthood, Maturity, Re try to take your mind back to one instance that you can recollect that you were really ecstatically happy. Hopefully we all have at least one. And then I would ask you, if you were one of these three o'clock in the morning waker-uppers, I want you to spend time with me in meditation state, with me leading it, Describing every element of that moment. The sounds, the people, the colors, the circumstances, what you were wearing, every single facet. And we'll go through it again and again. And then I'd say, I want you three times a day for 60 seconds each time. It's a long time, 60 seconds. 60 seconds, three times a day, to spend time like this, in quasi-meditative mode, recollecting that. And then come back to me in a week's time. And then I ask them, well, what's tormenting you? And they'll share with me. And I'll say, 
I want you right now to quickly move to that particular image that you are practicing. And they do it like that. And for 60 seconds, nothing's tormenting them. Now, what's happening physiologically? What is a thought? A thought is a certain transmission with neurotransmitters from one nerve end fiber, say here, to another nerve end fiber there. It's not really like that. But it is a pathway. That's a thought. The more you think that thought, the deeper the groove of the pathway for that neurotransmitting highway. So if you keep thinking negatively over and over again, worriedly over and over again, you're cutting a deeper and deeper groove, which makes it more likely that you can more easily jump to that thought. So I ask the person, I want you to practice three times a day a positive thought. So that at the same time, you're now cutting a new groove in the mind, so to speak, and practicing it. And when I teach you how to switch on command from the negative to the positive, you can do it. And now you start doing it three o'clock in the morning. And the first week it works to this extent, and the second week to that extent, and onwards and onwards. And by the time you finish the process, that old path line has overgrown with weeds, and the new one is blooming. Now, I've totally simplified it, but that's how it works. When you are stressed, you tend to continue to be stressed. And what stress? An interpretation. So I want to introduce, by way of my final little piece of information here, before we do a little meditation, two words. Emuna and bitachon. Now you're familiar with those words. Emuna means, well, it's translated commonly as faith, but I don't think it's a good translation. And bitachon means... Confidence. Confidence, trust, security... You know, in Israel, the defense ministry is Sarah Bittachon, right? But let's give it a more pragmatic definition. I'm going to share with you how the Labavitcher Rebbe distinguished Amunah and Bittachon. He says something like this. These aren't the Rebbe's words. Amunah is the belief that everything that has ever happened to you is for your current good, no matter what it has been, even if it's been painful, even if it's been hurtful. Everything that has ever happened is for your current good in ways that you and I, as finite human beings, may never be able to understand or decipher. Bitochon is the belief that the challenge you face now will have a positive outcome. The challenge that you have now will have a positive outcome. Now, what's the difference? Let me break it down. Amuna deals from the past to the present. Whatever's ever happened to you is for your current good. Past to present. Bitachon deals from the present to the future. The challenge that you face now will have a positive outcome. The challenge that you have now will have a positive outcome. 
The Rebbe says, we have to learn to adopt the postures of Amuna and Bitochon to neutralize stress, to neutralize worry. Now you'll say, but you know, I'm a realistic individual. And realistically, I shouldn't do that. But I say, why? Are you a prophet? You mean you know what's going to happen tomorrow that you should worry? You're stressed because you're concerned about tomorrow? Or maybe there is a prophet in the room. I doubt it. So you're a, if you happen to be a prophet, excuse me, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to everybody else. You don't know. So there's a 50-50 percentile probability that tomorrow's going to be a great day or not a great day. For Israel, for you, for the world. Since you don't know, how foolish is it to worry? How foolish it is to be stressed? In fact, you're such an egocentric individual by saying that tomorrow's going to be a bad day that caused you to worry. It's all about you, your prophecy. Come on. And here's another subtlety that's in Hasidus. The way that you think creates realities. Didn't I say that at the outset? You can project a thought to someone across the other side of the world and affect them materially and spiritually. Your thinking creates realities. Our negative thinking causes negative realities all the way to Israel. Our worry and our concern has an effect in the ether of space. When we are confident and positive, we actually create that outcome. So that's a second layer. Not only is it foolish to be stressed and worry, but we actually create negativity through it. And that's the point I want to make. Your hands do extend to Eretz Yisrael. You do affect it. Because your neshama, your soul, doesn't stop at the surface of your skin. But radiates, as I said at the very beginning of our talk, outwards infinitely. And the thoughts travel through in that way. So you have to take a bit of responsibility for yourself because your thought, thinking process and your feeling process is not purely private. It actually creates realities. And here's one other thing. Hashem designated in the Torah a certain part of the geographic world as having an element of Kedusha, holiness, that relates directly to the Jewish soul system. Resonates with it. It's not just a matter of legal rights. It's not just a matter of historical rights. It's got to do with spiritual realities. There are 71 different soul systems in creation. 71. Jewish is just one of them. There's another 70. The Torah is the manual for the Jewish soul system. And that manual tells us that the Eretz Yisrael resonates with our soul. 
different parts of the world have different spiritual qualities. I said everything at the beginning, everything has a nefesh, everything has a soul, a stone has a soul, a plant has a soul, an animal has a soul, humans have a soul. Which means everything is interrelated, achdut, interconnected. When you and I send a positive thought to Eretz Yisrael, our souls reaching out and touching a particular frequency in a particular part of the world effectively. That's how you and I affect things. With emunah and bitachon. And that's what I'd like you to take away. I want you to go out there and make sure that you're positively disposed. There are pathways that even concentrate that, like the saying of Tehillim. Through the saying of Tehillim, that spiritual frequency is even more pronounced in the way that you can affect things. Giving of tzedakah does it. Especially children. The innocence of children plays a really big role, spiritually speaking. But then we all have the child within also. We're children. I'd like to do a little meditation with you by way of closure. And then, if anyone still has questions, throw them at me. Put everything out of your hands. Put your feet symmetrically on the ground. Hands resting on knees or thighs. Back fairly straight. Head well balanced on your shoulders because the head is quite heavy. And gently close your eyes. And just focus on your breath, gently breathing in and breathing out. And if you can, breathe in and out through your nose. And just become aware of how cool the air is as it enters your nasal passages and how it's warmed by the time that it exits from your nose. Cool air entering, warm air exiting. And just maintain your focus on the coolness of the air and the warmth of the air. Breathing in and breathing out. And deepen the in-breath and out-breath. Deeper, in, deeper, out. 
and now try to direct the in-breath down to your abdomen and the way you can achieve that is when you breathe in immediately allow your abdomen to grow providing space within to collect the air <coughs> and then pull the abdomen in to expel the air so as you breathe in extend your abdomen out collecting the air and then pull it in to expel the air It's a little counterintuitive, so keep practicing it. lend some rhythm to the breathing. We'll breathe in for a count of three, hold for a count of three, and breathe out for a count of four. So take a slow deep breath in, two, three, hold, two, three, out, two, three, four. In, two, three, hold, two, three, out, two, three, four. And continue breathing rhythmically, abdominally, gracefully, smoothly. A perfect circle. And just become aware in the background how relaxed you have become. And in those short moments till now, nothing foreign has entered your mind. Everything breathes. The world breathes in and out. Night falls, dawn breaks, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. The petals open, the petals close. Everything has an in and out. Hashem breathes life into the universe. Hashem breathes in and out.
become aware now of a light source in your head. A source of light. It's comfortable. It's pleasant. It's warm. And that source of light provides light in your head space. Allow that light source to become a little stronger so that the light now filters down throughout your face, head, neck, feeling comfortable, warm, full of light. Invigorate the light source even more so it now filters down to your upper body. You can feel the warmth, the light in your chest cavity area, through your arms, forearms, wrists, hands, and fingers. Feeling that flow of Nishana from the point source within the head, spreading wonderfully through your body, intensify the light source even more. So now the light flows freely to your lower body. You feel it through your thighs, legs, feet, toes. You feel yourself wonderfully alight, even transparent. comfortable and warm. And now I want you to intensify the light in your head even more. So now that source of Nashama generates sufficient light that it begins to glow through your skin creating an aura around you. Yonashama extending beyond the perimeter of your body. Intensify the light even more 
so that your glow extends and encompasses everyone in this room in a spiritual embrace of love and kindness which is the nature of the soul. Intensify the source of light even more and allow that glow to go beyond this room into the world reflecting your truth, your neshama, to the other side of the world, to Eretz Yisrael. Allowing your soul to participate in an embrace of our brothers and sisters, our land. Joining, becoming one, echad, connecting. And spend a few moments realizing how powerful you individually are. that your spiritual hand does extend to the other side of the world positively lending strength confidence belief Once again, bring your focus back to your nose. Just become aware of the air entering the nasal passages and exiting. Feeling the cool air entering and the warm air exiting. Just an awareness of the differential. And now begin moving your fingers and your toes here in the room. Move your fingers, move your toes, coming all the way back. And when you feel ready, Gently open your eyes, realizing where you are. Feel better? Ready to go to sleep? <laughs> <laughs> It's a good technique for actually falling asleep.
Okay, so, you know, in the shortness of an hour, how much can we possibly uh, dialogue and uh, share with each other? And we're oceans away from each other, but through the wonders of modern technology, there's a thing called uh, email and WhatsApp and what have you. And I'd like you to feel very free to continue the conversation with me. Rabbi has my email contact. I'm a good respondent. I answer everyone's email. Something that I learned from the Rebbe. The Rebbe answered thousands and tens of thousands of letters. Expects it of all of us as well. Those of you who'd like to receive every week a few mini meditations, which I produce every week, they come on WhatsApp. The gentleman in the front, Mr. Rabinovich, receives them. You can tell him, he can, you can ask him about that. And if you want to pick up a copy of my book in preparation for your course on Kabbalah, my book happens to be called Practical Kabbalah, and it's published by Random House, and you can get it on Amazon.com. Feel free. And I really do endorse the course, because it's a very good primer. And after that, you must learn Sefer Tanya, the book of Tanya, very, very seriously. Are there any outstanding questions which will stop you going to sleep tonight if you don't ask them right now? You mean you do want to go to sleep, okay. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to be with you. I look forward to all of us hearing only good news, please God. Walk out of this room exuding confidence, positivity, amuna and bitachon, not fear. And don't be stressed. Good night.